Imagine a world you're thrilled to be living in. Imagine telling your children and your grandchildren that in this time and in this place, we came together. Imagine change unconstrained by our individual understandings of what's possible. This is all of us on WNHH 103.5, New Haven's independent radio station. I'm Greg Grinberg. Today, we're going to be talking with Elena Hodges, founder of RAMP. Uh, it's an initiative uh, based out of Yale's uh, undergraduate program and Yale Law School to better connect people who need government assistance with the programs that can provide that assistance. And it's being done in a way that I think is remarkable. It's being done in a way that collect, connects information, uh, connects people with the information that they actually need to determine if the program is right for them right up front without requiring uh, stakeholders to come uh, visit on premises, you know, take the bus and, and get there. Um, and so I think it's being done with a lot more empathy than, than we've ever seen before, and I'm really excited to have her on. Before she comes on, we're going to talk a little bit about the Civilian Review Board in a special comment here. The um, Civilian Review Board is, as uh, many uh, listeners will probably know, a long time in the making here in New Haven. It is uh, a response to episodes of uh, police uh, misconduct and police violence that have happened here in New Haven and, um, and also in the rest of the country. And um, the, uh, uh, it's been, a, it's been a, a, an effort that goes back 20 years, uh, starting with, uh, you know, with people like Emma Jones working on, um, on the CRB and then finally um, getting it into the city charter three years ago. However, there are some questions about uh, the scope of the CRB and whether it will have enough power to actually make any meaningful change uh, here in New Haven. There is an alternative proposal, one that I've had a hand in writing, um, to the one that was that that, that is up for consideration uh, this Wednesday, April fifth, at six o'clock at City Hall. Um, the uh, there will be a joint committee of the Board of Alders that will be holding a hearing to discuss that proposed ordinance. There will also be. Um, Presumably, quite a bit of input from the community on different, uh, you know, d- you know, different ways to move forward. I know that one group is uh, is advocating for scrapping that that ordinance entirely and going back to the drawing board. And uh, there is an alternative ordinance being proposed by myself and some others uh, to um, do something um, quite a bit more impactful than just um, than just review power. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that uh, before we bring in Elena. And I'd like to sort of start by talking about um, how I came to this. I became friends with Holly Tucker uh, shortly before she came on this very program uh, a few months ago. And she told the story of how she was uh, assaulted by two police officers. um, And she told it with courage and also with great forgiveness, which I thought was really remarkable. And if you haven't heard that story already, I, I totally encourage you to uh, to read about it uh, or listen to that episode. You can uh, hear episodes of this show um, in a podcast format um, on um, WNHH.org. Um, and what struck me, though, about that conversation with Holly and her mom, Barbara Fair, 
um, both of whom have been activists for better policing in New Haven for um, uh, for a long time, um, was that was sort of the degree of forgiveness that they that they had when they sort of when they were recounting what happened uh, to Holly, and that that forgiveness, that recognition that this. Um, that this that this problem with policing that we're seeing in um, certainly certainly uh, around the country, but even right here in New Haven, really doesn't have to do with any individual officers, um, you know. And and and, and uh, so that, that that was sort of my my um, entry point into this into this process. So for so I want to sort of fill in on the context, and then I want to talk a little bit about the specific um, the specific ordinance that. Uh, that that I've helped to write and that we'll be proposing on Wednesday as an alternative to the one that the um, that's that will be under consideration by the Joint Committee of the Board of Alders. Um, so on September 10th, um, 2016, uh, my friend Holly Tucker was physically attacked by two police officers who then filed charges against her, which were ultimately dropped. And the worst part, almost no one believed her until a video emerged that captured it on camera. And what's really troubling is that this is not an isolated incident. This is sort of a pattern that what happens is that, you know, officers, when they overreact, end up charging the person um, who has just been beaten up um, with with a crime that would sort of justify, in some sense, their their use of force, uh, even even if they have, you know, even if the individual in question has not done um, anything to merit that charge. And um and that's, that sort of seems to be kind of part of the pattern. Um, and then what happens is that those cases, the, the, those those cases against the individual, uh, can take years to, uh, you know, it can take certainly months, but sometimes years to resolve. Um, during which time, the, um, you know, the, the, you know, any sort of any kind of uh, energy left to, um, to to get any sort of redress of the original grievance, which was the excessive use of force. You know, it, it sort of it it becomes much harder to do after this whole process is dragged out. So that seems to be kind of part of the playbook: is you charge the individual with something that they didn't do that would justify that use of force, and then by the time those charges are dropped, the whole you know the, the kind of energy around it is dissipated, the community outrage has kind of subsided, and we kind of go back to business as usual. But the, but unfortunately, this this is part of a pattern, and it's not happening because these officers. And this is this is kind of what I what I've what I've learned from from Holly and from Barbara and. Um, you know, I'm deep, deeply grateful to them for their, um, you know, for 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 their their wisdom and for the forgiveness that they've shown in in this case. That you, what I've learned from them is that, and 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 based on what I've learned from them, I've I've come to believe that things like this don't happen because these officers were born wanting to do this, and I don't think it even happens because they got out of bed that morning and think to themselves, you know, I want to beat up a member of our community today. You know, hopefully it'll be a woman. Hopefully she's a mother. Hopefully she's black. You know, I don't think that that's what officers think about when they when they get out of bed in the morning or when they get in the car to come to work. I think this these things are happening, and I think that we're seeing this pattern because our community is not in control of our police department. When we talk about community policing, um, you know, in New Haven, the, the, the police cars say committed to community policing. Um, what it what does community policing mean? If not that the community is in charge of its police department, if not that the community has executive power over the police department, that that to me is the fundamental question, and I I don't know the answer to that, and I I don't understand how we can even really begin to talk about community policing unless unless that's true, and I and I see that as the fundamental problem. And I think that officers are 
um, ultimately confused about who they're serving when the community is not in control of the police department. And that's what establishes the pattern. And that's why Holly's case is not isolated. It's about the culture of the police department. It's not about individual police officers. Um, and we know that immigrants in the New Haven community have been silent victims of police brutality over the last several years. We know that Unidad Latina and Acción has had to step up forward uh, several times to assist. Um, and that's just a small subset of the pattern that we're talking about. So unfortunately, as we see it, the ordinance up for a hearing by the Board of Alders doesn't go nearly far enough. It's a good start, but a lot has to be added to it in order for it to make real change. So our proposal to create not just the Civilian Review Board, but the Community Executive and Review Board is different. It gives the community, fully represented by a big enough and diverse enough board, executive power over the police department with all the attendant rights and privileges, including hiring and firing. And that's really important. The community has executive power over the police department. Second, it gives every member of the board the power to block charges from being filed in an individual case, such as when evidence clearly doesn't substantiate the charges. So, in other words, that playbook that, you know, that, that sort of that, that, that playbook play um, of um, using excessive force and then charging the community member with, uh, with something spurious that would justify that, that charge, that won't work anymore. Because when there's clear evidence uh, that, uh, that the charge is unsubstantiated, any member of this, of this community executive and review board will be able to, to block the charges from being filed in the first place. Third, it gives the board original review power over all complaints about police activity, meaning it, it doesn't go to internal affairs first, it goes straight to the board. And it gives every member of the board the power to bring a review action. So finally, we have, we have all the, 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 the original review power is really important because it means that the evidence will be reviewed, um, the evidence and original complaint by a member of the community will be reviewed by uh, the, the CERB, the Community Executive and Review Board, first. Fourth, it emphasizes prevention and restoration over punishment for both officers and members, members of the community. In other words, it's a shift towards restorative justice that we can implement right here, right now, uh, at the city level, uh, using the power um, granted under this proposed ordinance um, of, of executive and review power uh, to the Community Executive and Review Board. Finally, and most importantly, it recognizes that everyone, every single person, is a human being of infinite, inherent, immutable value and potential to benefit her community. And you and meaning that the you, it's really a simple realization. It's this it's the simple realization that the that the use of police power should be min, minimal in a community. I mean, last week we saw the convictions of um, I believe it was twenty one um, gang members here in New Haven, and there was a press conference, and 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 Chief Campbell was there, and. This was no doubt a, a victory of policing. It was a, it was a great success of policing, um, and yet to not look at that and and recognize that underneath all that is a deep failure of our community. That our community, um, our community failed those those twenty one people, and uh, and I'm not saying that that our community is entirely responsible for that, but it's contributory. And when we recognize that, we can start to look for creative solutions to, um, to situations where members of our community uh, have broken the law. And we can look towards, um, towards restoration uh, for, and, and, and a resolution that is best for all parties concerned uh, 
that that uh, that that uh, that happens as quickly as possible, and we can do that. Um, we can we can again have that shift towards restorative justice over retributive justice if we have the community in charge of the police department. Now, uh, the week before last, I hosted a forum with Mayor Harp on this topic of of um, it, it was it was a forum on all city issues, but the one that that um, that 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 took up most of the discussion was policing and the need for police reform in New Haven. And Holly was there and again told her story courageously and without anger. And throughout the discussion, I think what became really clear is that one person cannot oversee the police department. One community member cannot cannot be the community's voice um, on behalf of the entire community. Um, and I know that intelligent people will disagree about this, but um, but that was that was my take on it after that conversation. That was my my biggest takeaway was that uh, expecting you know we have we have a civilian commander in chief right at the federal level over our armed forces. In the same way, we have um, we have a non police officer, the mayor, the mayor in this case as as it stands right now, in charge of our police department. But for one person to be in charge of um, a department that big in a city of 160,000 people is a little bit of a tall order in my estimation. And I, and I think that no one person can truly represent the diversity of a community like New Haven. I mean, we are in New Haven as diverse as the entire United States, right? We, we know that more than any other uh, metropolitan statistical area, New Haven represents, uh, New, New Haven is, is most closely, um, most similar to the U.S. overall, um, than any other metropolitan area in the country. So with this kind of diversity here, I think that we need uh, a big enough board um, in charge of the police department with executive power. I think that having the, the, the I think with the with one person, with one mayor being um, responsible for all that, I think it's uh, I, I, I think I think we're asking a superhuman task to be done. Um, so I want to go ahead and um, so first of all. Again, the, there will be a hearing on April 5th uh, at 6 p.m. at City Hall uh, for this, uh, this ordinance on the CRB, but, it, but, but about, the, about policing in general. I encourage anyone who believes that it's time for restorative justice in New Haven, who believes that it's time for the community to have executive control over the police department, who believes that it's not about vilifying or punishing individual officers, but it's about setting a culture of service-oriented policing. Uh, and, and I encourage anyone who thinks that it's time to, uh, to ultimately recognize the root causes of, of crime in our community um, and address them through the, through the executive power of the police department uh, the executive, sorry, the executive power over the police department, rather, uh, I encourage you to come out and testify um, on April 5th, 6 p.m. Uh, at City Hall. I'd like to go ahead and read the preamble uh, of this ordinance that, uh, that we've written, that, I've, that I myself has helped, have helped to write, and then we'll, um, uh, then, uh, we'll bring in Elena Hodges and we'll be talking about RAMP, um, the project that she started to help better connect uh, members of the community who need the help of uh, NGOs, nonprofit organizations, and government service organizations um, with the information that they need about those services. So this is the preamble of the draft ordinance, the proposed ordinance to uh, establish the 
Community Executive and Review Board of Policing. And the preamble is, Whereas everyone, every single person, is a human being of infinite, inherent, immutable value and potential. And whereas everyone in New Haven is a member of our community, whether she lives here, lives here sometimes, learns here, works here, or visits here. And whereas community policing means, at a minimum, that the entire community is represented in fine-grained oversight and executive control over the police department. And whereas each of us has abundant gifts to offer our community. And whereas it is our natural and desired tendency to offer these gifts freely. And it is a tragedy when anyone is deprived of the freedom to do so for any amount of time and to any degree and by any mechanism. And whereas police officers join our department with the best of intentions to serve our community and offer their gifts in its service. And whereas to hold accountable is a less worthy goal than to create the conditions in which everyone in our community may best use her gifts to its benefit and more fully realize her potential. And this applies to both police officers and non-police officers equally. And whereas when conflicts occur, and when one of our community members does harm to another, we rely on our police to respond, many times at great risk to their personal safety. And furthermore, whereas in these situations, it is our goal to restore our relationship and community with all parties concerned, in the best possible way for all parties concerned, as quickly as possible, and with minimal force of policing. And in applying this goal equally requires creative and diverse solutions, and this applies to police officers and other members of our community equally. And furthermore, whereas in these situations it is our goal to understand the root causes and to create better conditions in the future, and this in turn requires trust and open communication from the parties involved. And whereas every complaint against and any every complaint against and arrest of any member of our community, and every disciplinary action against a police officer, while it may represent a success of policing and internal policing respectively, represents an underlying failure of our community. And whereas other professions, such as airline pilots, have benefited from a culture of rewarding practitioners for admitting mistakes so that preventative measures may be developed rather than punishing mistakes, and thus furthermore, whereas science is a better tool for our community than reactionary precedent-driven retribution. And whereas discretionary nullification is a universally accepted policing practice, and whereas when a community member violates its rules, ordinances, or laws with neither ill intent nor actual harm, taking enforcement action against her hurts the community, and reevaluating the rule, ordinance, or law benefits the community. And whereas in the context of community policing, the power of discretionary nullification must belong to the community fully represented, as well as to individual responding police officers. And whereas serving as a police officer is a privilege granted by the community, not a right, and furthermore, whereas this privilege entails, among other things, the carriage of dangerous and deadly weapons, the power to detain, and the wearing of a badge and uniform which in itself is a symbol of power and intimidation, and must necessarily therefore also be a symbol of restraint. And furthermore, whereas given all of the foregoing, the mere appearance of an, uh, of an abuse of police power to any degree, in any instance, including but not limited to the use of excessive force, harms our community. And whereas communities in, poli- in which police trust the community and the community trust the police are safer for both the community and the police, and whereas a culture of service-oriented policing can help create the conditions in which this trust can develop over time, and executive control by the community over the police helps ensure a culture of service-oriented policing. Now, therefore, be it ordained that the city of New Haven hereby enacts the Community Executive and Review Board of Policing for the purpose of executive control over the police department. 
This is the draft ordinance. You can read it. This is the preamble of the draft ordinance. You can read it and the full ordinance, which again covers the, it's, uh, the CERB's executive power over the police department, its nullification power, its review power, uh, its research and evaluation power, and the election procedure by which we can ensure that this board consisting of 45 members will serve the interests of the entire community and represent the interests of the entire community. And finally, you can read about the, it's, uh, the, these, are, these are gory details that usually are not that interesting, but in this particular case it is. The, the severability and progressive enactment clause I think is really interesting. You can read about that too. The entire draft ordinance, the entire proposed ordinance I should say, um, in its entirety, um, you can find it in, on Facebook um, under the What Now New Haven group. Uh, if you're not a member of that group already, uh, ask to join. Uh, we'll let you in. Not, uh, not, a, not a stringent gatekeeper there. Um, we'll be right back in a few moments, and uh, we'll talk with Elena Hodges, founder of RAMP. So we're back. This is WNHH 103.5, New Haven's independent radio station. You're listening to all of us. I'm Greg Grinberg. My guest today is Elena Hodges, a graduating senior from Yale, majoring in political science and founder of RAMP, Resource Access Mapping Project. She currently has a board of eight members and 80 or so volunteers. Uh, Elena, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So to start with, I, I'd like to uh, just in, in in quick like short sentences, like what um what what is RAMP? What is the goal of the project? Yeah, so it's a project for 
New Haveners and by New Haveners um, that's aimed at improving resource access for folks in town, especially people who are refugees or who are undocumented or have asylum seeker status or folks who are getting out of prison or jail. Um, so trying to make it clearer and easier to access social services, whether they're health services or legal services or things like childcare and playgrounds. Um, so whatever people might be looking for in town, trying to make it as easy as possible for them to know what they need to bring, who they need to be if there's particular requirements, um, and just making everything a little bit more transparent so that folks know what the deal is. Yeah, and I know that sort of relative to other projects that have kind of come before that have had similar goals like 211, mm -hmm. you're collecting quite a bit more information about the services and the sort of eligibility requirements. And is that is that sort of fair to say? That's right, yeah. One big component is that a lot of the existing information is out of date um, for any particular organization, but also the range of available data is often not what you would want. So it might just be restricted to basic program information that is no longer true or that doesn't really describe what an organization does in clear language or just doesn't tell you, you know, if you're undocumented, would you be eligible? If that's not clear, most people who would have undocumented status wouldn't feel comfortable going because they might be turned away. And the same goes for somebody who might have a record um, of incarceration in their past or somebody who doesn't have legal status at all if they're an asylum seeker. So we're trying to make it really sensitive and relevant to people who might not be you know, the average person born in this country um, with completely robust legal status um, so that it would be relevant to those folks as well in town but additionally would have information that might help people who don't fall into, you know, the kind of affluent and savvy and well-educated user. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we have so many nonprofit organizations in, um, in New Haven and so many government services. And mm -hmm. it can be quite a patchwork to understand what any individual person is eligible for and what they're not. Right. That's the thing. New Haven represents a kind of paradox in a way because the resource density of the city is staggering in a really good way. There's more resources across the board than your average city of this size. Um, but the problem is that just because there are more organizations doing great work doesn't necessarily mean that people know about them or find out about them in time. Absolutely. And even... Even practitioners in social work and in medicine can sometimes not necessarily find out about mm -hmm. new organizations or new services right away. Yeah, so referrals at the institutional level are also something that we're thinking a lot about. And we've heard from a lot of practitioners, um, whether they're in Fairhaven at Haven Free Clinic or with Iris or some of the Yale Medical School clinics, that there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of transparency and referrals. Um, so, yeah, we're looking to make this project really useful for users themselves, but also for social workers and clinicians and other service providers, too. Awesome. I have tons of other questions I want to ask you about this. Yeah, but, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but most importantly, um, and right off the bat, for people who want to volunteer to get mm -hmm. involved in this project, um, you're super cool to work with. Anybody who's listening, you guys should definitely get to know Elena. How, how can they get in touch with you? How can, they, how can people volunteer? Yeah, so we'd love the help from anybody and everybody. There's a bunch of different ways to be involved. Um, but mostly, we're looking to just kind of get the word out. Tell mm. your friends we're looking to launch this project in the next few years. And so it's not something that is happening tomorrow and you know, is a one-off thing. It's going to be an ongoing process of gathering participation from across the community. So we'd love to gather input and feedback um, 
if you have ideas or experience with refugee law, or if you're yourself a healthcare provider, or um, if you have a neighbor who is undocumented or fall into the category of just somebody in New Haven who cares about the city and wants to know more and want to make the city run better for everybody, you can email me. My email is elenahodges at yale.edu. We also have periodic info sessions um, and roundtables at the med school and the law school. Um, So yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to get involved in a more ongoing um, kind of energy intensive capacity, we're also looking for board members and community liaisons starting in the fall. Awesome. And uh, when you do post uh, Facebook events with info Mm -hmm. sessions or volunteer opportunities, um, among other places you will be able to find them is on the What Now New Haven Facebook group. That's right. So how did you get started in this? What, What was the motivation? Yeah, so a couple of different things overlapped, um, but one of the big determinants was my work with a particular family in New Haven um, who I started working with a couple of years ago through the Yale Refugee Project um, and their partnership with IRIS. Um, and so this particular family comes from Baghdad, but they've been shuttled all over. They spent a few years living in Turkey and then they spent a few years living in Syria until the civil war broke out. So they've been through a lot and had to adjust or failed to adjust to a bunch of different cultures and societies. By the time they got to New Haven, they were pretty exhausted with that and Mm. just haven't really had the time or resources to acclimate very quickly. And so even though they've been here since 2014, my time with them has often been as sort of a cultural translator, trying to explain to them, you know, what does it mean to do your W-2s if you have no income or how do you navigate city halls, different departments? Or, you know, what does it mean to need to keep your, a hold of your health records? Or, you know, what's the school report look like? So there's just a lot of information that you kind of need as a prerequisite to understanding the service landscape in town. And so they didn't have either of those things. They didn't have a good track record with service providers in town. Mm-hmm. But they also just didn't have the background info that they needed um, or the language skills, frankly. Um, so in interacting with them and trying to be a good support system for them, um, it became clear that there's this is reflective not just of you know personal you know problems or defects or anything like that, but more systemic issues societally um, where we just don't have enough follow through um, with refugee families particularly, and they're often the ones who get the most attention in town. Um, as compared to ex-offenders or uh, undocumented folks. And so if even refugee families are really struggling to know what resources are around them that are relevant to them, then that's pretty indicative that there's a larger problem. Um, so I was just thinking a lot with, in the context of um, my capstone for this human rights program that I'm a part of. Um, last fall, we all did capstones and it was the chance to kind of embark on an independent project to do any kind of human, re- human rights related work. Um, And I felt pretty strongly that I wanted to do something that was based in New Haven Um, because as a Yale student, I live in New Haven, but often I'm not pushed to think about myself as a New Haven resident first and foremost. And so I wanted to kind of take up that challenge to not just think about, you know, how do I interact with the campus and maybe have a a nice night out on the town or go to a nice Mm. park, but actually what are my obligations to the city? How can I contribute? What are the skills that I have and what can I learn from this city while I'm still here? So speaking of everyone bringing their gifts to the community, this was something that I was talking about right before you got here. Um, I think that's, that's, that's awesome. 
And so, and, and, I, and, and one of the th- cool things that I noticed about the data set that you're collecting is it mm-hmm. seems like translation into Spanish and Arabic are, uh, that, that's a day one feature of RAMP. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Functionality in languages other than English is one of our huge priorities. So not just having information available in clear and accessible English, because that's huge, but also being able to start working with residents in town who speak Pashto and Dari at some point, um, and Lingala and Swahili will also be on the table as sort of a second um, rollout phase right. after Arabic and Spanish. But we identified Arabic and Spanish in the very first phase um, of thinking about this project as really important, um, particularly because most folks in Fairhaven or in West Haven who um, who would most likely not have the best access to downtown resources, to interpreters, right. to um, Spanish-speaking providers. There's very few Arabic-speaking providers, period, no matter where you are in the city. Um, the people who are most isolated and have the longest transport times and the most barriers to access are often people who are not native English speakers. And so we want to make sure that the information is not just run through Google Translate in the end, um, especially for Arabic, that's not really a good workaround. Yeah. Um, for Spanish, it's you know doable in the short term, but we want to work with people to translate it in their own words mm. so that it makes sense um, at a, on a cultural level too, not just a linguistic level, um, and to garner participation from these people who have language skills and who understand how to translate in, in a way that's actually you know, fun to do, fun to read, fun to interact with, um, and can actually build in their skills from day one rather than just getting technocrats at some later date to spit out translations that might not be relevant to people. Um, this seems like a really awesome way to engage people in town you know, from the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've, you've done a lot of thinking about the user experience of um, trying to engage with these services and, you know, recognizing that, that people who need services like this oftentimes are extremely busy, actually. Right. Yeah. I mean... A lot of people are working multiple jobs or are juggling really hard childcare issues with caring for ailing family members or neighbors. Um, and yeah, it's hard to find time in the day if you spend a lot of time navigating buses and waiting at bus stops. And then if you want to take time off from work, you're potentially not going to get overtime or your boss might get frustrated with you and you might be jeopardizing your very employment. Right. Um, or if you know, you have a large family and kids of many ages, like my Iraqi family, they have kids ranging from 14 months all the way to 20. And so there's a lot of different things going on all the time right. that just have to take precedence. Or if you're dealing with health challenges, it's really difficult if you're not that mobile or if you're focused on making sure you're, you know, picking up your meds, you wouldn't necessarily have the luxury of reaching out and making an appointment two weeks in advance and following through and then doing a pre-application and bringing your paperwork and just checking all of the boxes that might seem pretty intuitive or pretty low key to people who are conversant um, in those particular ways with bureaucracy. Right. Um, That can be really hard and really time consuming if you're not used to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so, so in, in so many words, what you're trying to do is bring the recognizing how busy people are who mm-hmm. need these services, bring all of the information about these services uh, that, that they need to know in their own language um, right up front. So right. that there's just not this time waste of taking the bus to the location and then going through the whole rigmarole and then finding out 
you're not even eligible in the right. first place the idea or whatever. Is that all this information will be at people's fingertips mm-hmm. on their phones or on a laptop. And so that you can just sit on your couch at your leisure and talk through it or have a friend talk through it with you or be able to explain it to your mom and that it can be a lot more personal and a lot more tailored to people's individual schedules. That's awesome. So this this refugee family that you've been working with, what do they think of the project so far? They're really excited about it. Um, I think the kids in particular have had a chance to spend a lot of time in school practicing English, but mm-hmm. the parents really haven't been able to prioritize learning English. And so they have a lot of health challenges, um, especially from the the father's side, and they haven't really had good experiences with the healthcare system in New Haven because of language barriers and because of cultural barriers as well. And so I know the kids, um, and one of the sisters in particular, is really excited about the idea of being able to just figure out how to get her dad kind of conversant in the things he needs to know about his healthcare so that he can take charge of it and have it not be disempowering and confusing and frustrating and just one negative thing after the next, but rather flip it around so that he can really take charge of his health in a way that feels good and doesn't feel like he's just losing and losing and losing and kind of wants to just be out of the running and has been reluctant Mm. to go back to appointments. And so that's just one example, but there have been other parallel experiences with trying to get their spellings changed of their names on different identity cards Mm. and that being years long in the making and then more mistakes still happening um, in terms of trying to get passports and ID cards and social security cards. And um, in in terms of the amount of energy and time that that sucked out of their lives, it's really significant. And so absolutely being able to just know where to go, know which office to go to, know exactly which bus to take and which ones not running on Sunday. All of that is stuff that they've had to figure out slowly and painfully and a lot of trial and error. And so they're really excited for themselves to be able to do these things more easily in the future, but also for other families who are coming or other people who are already in town to kind of have that all be taken out of the equation and have everything be a little more streamlined. They think that it could make a big difference in in town for folks. That's awesome. Yeah. When you think about the, you know, being, being, when anytime I spend time out in Silicon Valley, one of the things, I mean, I'm struck (laughs) by many, many things about the culture out there, but Mm -hmm. one of the, one of the things that I really like about, about Silicon Valley's culture is the, um, what has become a sort of mainstream obsession with user experience Mm. Um, and that, you know, the idea that whether, whether you're a startup out of garage or whether you're Facebook, it, you, you may, you know, you, you either are today or may one day touch billions of users. And when you sort of think about that, you know, if you can save a user half a second in getting something done, you do it. You, you, you might take a couple of days of developer time to make that change that will, that will save, you know, so many users and so many interactions that half a second. Um, and I wonder, it, 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 it seems like, it seems like though when we're talking about government programs, the, it can be quite the opposite that there's not been a whole lot of thought given to the user experience. I mean, you talk about trying to get ID names on ID cards changed and that taking years, which is astounding. I'm curious, this is a tangent of course, but I'm curious to hear if, you know, what your thoughts are on sort of the state of user experience in, you know, in, in government programs as you've, as you've experienced it, as you've, as you've sort of seen it through, you know, to the, to the best extent that you can through the eyes of, of this refugee family that you've been working with. Mm -hmm. Well, often it just seems like a comedy of errors Mm. and everybody complains about 
the bureaucracy and the amount of paperwork you have to do in different departments you have to see kind of in general, whether you're in New Haven or any other city um, or whether you're even in a different country. It's kind of a standard like, oh, man, technocrats, bureaucrats. This is, you know, who's employing these people? Mm. But I think there's a lot of people who would change things if they could, if things were easy to change. You know, there's not like a concerted um sinister presence trying to make things complicated for people but there's just a lot of inertia i think it's just an institutional slow-moving inertia that ends up just kind of getting away from people um and it was interesting speaking with some of the people at 211 talking to them about how there's a long laundry list of things that they know could improve the user experience but Mm. that they're unable to prioritize because they have budgetary constraints because there's just other things on the docket and so it's not that there's a lack of care um, across the board or that people at, you know, in administrative positions are incompetent or don't care about their users. But often that's just not the framework. That's not the Silicon Valley kind of tech startup framework where you're starting from the position of what will be easiest for the user, what makes most sense for someone who's not technologically, you know, like savvy in terms of all of the bylaws and is willing to read an 80 page document. Right. It's not that's not really the baseline assumption. And so I think because that's sort of been the trend or that's the way things have been set up, it's kind of difficult to make that reversal now. Whereas companies that are starting now have the luxury of starting from a different set of assumptions and a different set of priorities where they're really thinking about what the user will want to know, what they'll need to see, how they'll want to interact with a you know an interface or an app or whatever it might be. Um, but I don't just don't think that that was what informed a lot of, you know, places like the different organizations you'll find in city hall or, right. or other places in new Haven. Um, and I do think it's, it's a shame because I think everyone stands to benefit. It's not just the users who stand to benefit from an easier and less you know, drawn out experience, but sure. also a lot of people in town who spend time shuttling people around from clinic to clinic, trying to find the right person to talk to, or a lot of people whose life work is in social services would stand to benefit immensely from just cutting out all of that extra time and making things more efficient. Um, And also just giving people a chance to have a good experience on the front end and potentially change people's perceptions about government programs and institutions. Um, So yeah, I don't think there's like one key juncture where everything was set up in a way that was kind of harebrained and backwards, but rather just slow kind of institutional evolution where often the changes you can make in the short term are good, but they might be sacrificing user engagement down the line. And then you kind of do what you can with what you have at the time, but often you do sacrifice how streamlined things can be and you might end up making the paperwork that much longer, um, you know, decades down the line. Absolutely. I mean, as a software engineer myself, I can sort of attest to how difficult good user experience really is Mm -hmm. um and that you know it's not um yeah you certainly don't need bad motivation or ill intent to create a user experience that's not necessarily streamlined you know it's it's become a profession at this point um so wanted to also just um open up the uh floor to questions uh here if anyone would like to call in uh harry what's the number over here again i keep forgetting it uh I think it's 203-872-7356, uh, but uh, hopefully Harry will uh, will confirm that. I think it's 203-872-7356 if any 
one would like to call in um, with a question uh, for Elena. Um, and uh, again, if you want to get involved with the Ramp Project, you can find out about uh, that. And that is the number, 203-852-7356. Um, yeah, we've got a Facebook group. It's New Haven Ramp. So just New Haven and all lowercase and then R-A-M-P. Um, again, that stands for Resource Access Mapping Project. So you can like us, you can follow the page, and we post updates. So yeah, we'd love to get in touch with you. Awesome. And Elena, you've been working with practitioners as well, um, you know, just, which are just a, a, an equally important group of users for, for the Ramp data set, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear what the, what their feedback has been and what what you know how that's informed your um, you know your process so far. Yeah. So as we were talking about before, there's such a wealth of different providers in town. So it's been a little t- tricky trying to identify where to start because there's so many people who we could stand to learn from. But I've kind of focused mostly on groups I already had contacts with. So I started with Iris um, because I've been working with them since I was a sophomore. So it's been about three years now um, and was speaking with them about how we could integrate this program into their intakes. And that's been a theme that's popped up with a lot of different organizations who do not only their own service revision, but also do a lot of coordination work with other organizations. So in presenting to clinicians at the Haven Free Clinic, where they provide services to people without health care, many of whom are undocumented in Fairhaven every single Saturday, and they do amazing work. They said similarly, like, we would love to work this project into intakes so we can actually give people better information that's tailored to their needs the first time we're interacting with them and sitting down with them. Um, similarly, there's the Transitions Clinic in mm. the Yale Medical School. Um, Dr. Emily Wong is the head provider there and they do really good work on continuity of care for people who are getting out of incarceration mm. and who may not have health insurance but who need to keep up with whatever you know medical regimens or whatever treatments or just make sure that their primary care is good mm. um, and she similarly said that a lot of things are really tough in terms of the social determinants of health and following up with people so not just are they taking their meds but how do they get housing and keep their housing? You know, how do you make sure that somebody is able to get their food stamps on time? Or there's just a lot of different questions people have. And a lot of times medical professionals or legal professionals aren't the ones with the answers um, or don't have the time necessarily to do the amount of research necessary to provide the right answer to the right person when they're asking that question. Um, so, yeah, pr- practitioners across the board from the asylum clinic, um, they do medical evaluations for asylum seekers, to the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project in the law school, to New Haven Works, they do really good employment advocacy work, um, to the Reentry Roundtable, which is a monthly roundtable of people from the Department of Corrections and from different reentry groups um, and different faith-based groups. They've all been really positive. Um, granted, there's tons of room for improvement, but there's been pretty much across the board the feedback that, yes, first of all, this is something that we need, that the city doesn't have locked down yet, um, but also that this is relevant to whatever particular user base or whatever community. Um, and so pr- practitioners have recognized that their users and their clients and patients could use this and then have also been really personally excited, which is something that I wasn't initially anticipating. Because as right. you said, um, this is conceiving of multiple user groups. So not just individuals looking to get their needs met or the needs of their family met, but also practitioners at the institutional organizational level. And so that's been really cool to see that there's at least as much enthusiasm among those providers for their clients as for themselves and for 
kind of their cohort of providers um, who are doing that sort of technical, have the people who have the technical expertise and the professional capacity to provide targeted services to people, usually in one specific area, but who recognize that people are complicated and needs are complicated. And in order to get somebody, you know, housing secure and food secure and with the right med- you know, meds in the long term, um, you know, and accessing the right playground and having good childcare. There's just so much that has to go into that. And so it's cool to re- see that there's a lot of recognition that there's not just one quick workaround, but rather that it's like a holistic system um, of resources that need to support people. Um, and so it's cool to see that there is support from multiple levels um, around town. And yeah, so that's, that's been the feedback so far. We'll see what happens in the next few months. That's awesome. And doing any kind of work in New Haven, when you have that much support from such a broad base of different um, different types of practitioners, that's pretty impressive. Um, so uh, again, if you want to volunteer with Elena's project, RAMP, uh, you can find out about it on Facebook at the group. Yeah, it's called New Haven RAMP. New Haven RAMP. Great. And um, again, the hearing with the Board of Alders uh, on the New Haven uh, Civilian Review Board is uh, this Wednesday, April 5th at 6 p.m. at City Hall. Uh, encourage anyone who is, uh, who's been thinking about policing reform in New Haven and who feels strongly about it to come out and testify. Uh, this has been an episode of All of Us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. Elena, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me.